Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to Black Women Amplified, the podcast. Your host, Monica Wisdom Tyson, brings you downloadable conversations that matter to women around the globe. We discuss all things black girl magic, amplify our voices, and transform our challenges into triumphs. Monica calls on her league of extraordinary women to push our boundaries, share their expertise, and stories of personal transformation. Welcome your host of Black Women Amplified, Monica Wisdom Tyson. Hello, Black Women Amplified family. It is your girl, Monica Wisdom, and I am so excited to be with you today. Today, we have an incredible conversation with an amazing woman. Leatrice Elsie's story is a magnificent example of how passion, hard work, and trusting your intuition intersects. Her journey through the arts has led her to working with some of the most important figures in Black culture. Black arts is a space where expression and wonderment connect. It allows us to see ourselves and dream bigger. Leatrice is one of the most powerful influencers in the Black arts movement. She has dedicated her life and her career to ensuring that Black people continue to have a safe space, opportunities, and support in order to develop their art and ideas. As the Senior Program Director of the Apollo Theater in New York City, she is able to expand their footprint across the nation and strengthen their foundation around the globe. Leatrice is a seasoned arts leader, curator, producer, thinker, and a fan of disruption. She has lent her 32 years of experiences to many organizations, including Atlanta's Hammond House Museum, the National Black Arts Festival, and the Woodruff Arts Center, just to name a few. Leatrice Elsie's impact continues to ripple around the globe, carrying the message of hope, love, and joy as she works tirelessly to ensure the sustainability and continuation of Black arts. Please give a very warm welcome to the divine, the incredible Leatrice Elsie. Thank you, Leatrice, for saying yes to this conversation with Black Women Amplified. I am so happy that you're here. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. <laughs> I consider you one of the oracles of the Black arts community because the way that you envision collaboration and uniting different disciplines of music, it's really putting together one voice and one sound that I call art. And when God downloaded this assignment for me to speak to Black women in the arts, you're one of the main people. I'm like, I got to talk to Leatrice. Wow. Because I know we've met in Atlanta, and I don't know if we've danced together <laughs> at one of the parties or when I went to the Black Arts Festival, but I knew that you were an integral part of continuing the legacy of Black art. So I wanted to make sure that you were part of this conversation. So I'm grateful that you're here. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you so much for your words. You know, sometimes when you do this work, you don't know if anyone's paying attention. And mm-hmm. it's always, always a pleasure to um, know and hear that people were paying attention. Paying attention, girl. <laughs> I kept my eyes on you. And I just saw that you went to Africa, but maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted the audience to know not only about your work, but about you as well. And because I think your work is so important because you're one of the keepers of the culture, but you're also a liberator. Can you tell us a little bit about your backstory? Well, I am the daughter of an educator. Well, actually a couple of educators, you know, my mother and father were both uh, teachers. Mm-hmm. My grandmother was a teacher, I come from a family, college professors and presidents of universities and what have you. And so education was always front and foremost in our world. And then all the things that came with education, you know, in terms of culture, you know, we were always heading to a play, a concert, a gospel concert. I mean, we were always going somewhere to paint, dance, 
you know, do theater. Mm-hmm. We were part, our family was part of a theater ensemble. I'm from Wilmington, Delaware. And so our family was part of a family theater ensemble. So on Saturdays, it was dance classes and theater classes, you know, acting classes and what have you. So we were always engaged in either that kind of work or work that was building community. You know, so whether it was some type of political work, you know, handing Mm -hmm. out flyers or my father used to run a community center over in one of the areas like that was a, a project area in our community. So we were over there during the week tutoring, you know, feeding people, you know, what have you. So it was either the arts or community building. And that was <laughs> my life growing up. That's amazing. We have a very similar background. My parent, my mom was a teacher and I have family and education. And so we were always at the theater and art gallery. <laughs> we weren't at the games like the other kids. Right. <laughs> Where well, did no, you- but you know, but we actually, but I also was like in high school, I was in track and, you know, and we actually were, we were at the games as well. So, you know, it really was a very well-rounded, you know, I grew up in a well-rounded environment, but, you know, there were these punctuation marks that went in terms of education, in terms of how you carry culture, how you carry yourself within the culture, you know, as well as, you know, just like really, how do you be the best person that you're going to be able to be? And then there were expectations on what that, what that level was going to be, you know? Right. You know? So, well, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> although your family cultivated that in you or you were exposed to it, how did you decide to choose it as a career path? Well, you know, I didn't decide to choose it because, you know, growing up, when I was growing up, I didn't even, I would not have even been able to articulate what I do now as a career path, you mm-hmm. know? So I knew that my calling was going was to somehow help and support communities in some kind of way, and specifically Black people. But I didn't really know what that looked like. Mm-hmm. And so when I started my career off, I actually really started out in communications, you know, so working in media. And then I moved on to nonprofit management. So I worked with Girl Scouting. I worked with the YWCA, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of organizations thinking that, you know, it was really this kind of grassroots community, like, you know, how you touch people, how you touch community and provide yourself in service. And so I did that for, you know, quite some time, but I was missing the arts. And then I also realized that that part, that was not so fulfilling for me. And that it takes really special people to do various things. And so there were parts of that that I was like, I may, this, I may not be so cut out for this in particular, you know, very particular ways. When we dealt with dealing with, you know, women who are victims of domestic violence, mm-hmm. you know, those types of like really, really heavy issues that where I was very hands on and saw some very traumatizing things that were happening to women and I'm so empathetic mm-hmm. that it was not a good space for me to be in, you know, because of my own levels of empathy. So I was like, yeah, this is probably not the best space for me to be in. <laughs> and so then, you know, I moved on and I was like, I just wanted to get closer to the arts. Mm-hmm. And so I started working for public broadcasting. So I was actually like the on-air fundraising manager at GPTV for a number of years. And it was like, we presented the arts on television, (laughs) but I wasn't working in the arts. And so I still was trying to get closer and closer and closer. And so the next thing I got a call from Woodruff Arts Center, they were looking for someone to run a program that they had that was called Spirit and Splendor, a celebration of African-American art and culture. And that was like right down my alley. And so I started my career in the arts at um, Woodruff Arts Center. And it grew from there. So then would you say that your career was, was a, do you feel like it was something you chose or it chose you or you manifested it? Because you're saying you just got a call. Was it a job that you were looking for or just in your heart? You no, were like, I this wasn't, is direction I want to go not only was Yeah, not only was I not looking for it, Monica, that when I first got the call, I was like, mm, no, I'm a pass on it. <laughs> <laughs> because I was trying to, you know, I was really kind of trying to figure out you know, I knew that I was ready to move on from public television and public broadcasting, but didn't really know what that direction looked like. Mm-hmm. And so when I got the first call, I passed and was like, mm, no, that's not my job. And so when they're like, this is you, it's your gig. And I was like, 
Mm, no, it's not. <laughs> and so I kept it moving. And this is how, and this is such a crazy story, but so the Winter Arts Center is, you know, as we know, on Peachtree Street at 17th Street. Okay. Yes, 17th. Georgia Public Broadcasting is on 14th Street on the other side, like when you're going towards Georgia Tech, on the other side of the interstate, you've got Mm -hmm. Georgia Public Broadcasting standing right there. Okay. So I had a downtown meeting one day and I had to run downtown to this meeting and the meeting was on Peachtree Street, but it was on Peachtree downtown. As I'm coming back towards getting ready to get back to GPB, there's a, they're doing this construction on 14th Street. Mm. I was like, Really? And so I get down 14th Street and the detour was not only 17th Street, but they actually was were taking people like by the, you know, when you pull into Woodruff into that little to the little circle. Wow. Yes. And so I was like, for real, guys. <laughs> and so I got out of the car. I mean, so I went and I parked. Ask security if I can keep my car there. I was like, I'm just running in. I'll be right back. And I called the girl that had called me and I said, what's the woman's name again? <laughs> that, you know, that is hiring. She was a vice president over at Woodruff and vice president of communication. And she told me her name and she's like, I'm not in the building right now, but here's her name. Ask for her. I was like, okay, great. So I found her and I said, Hey, I said, you know, they, re- they told me that you had a position. I got a call from Tawana and you know, this, that, and the other. And she's like, oh, well, let's talk. Monica, mm. we talked for about 25 minutes. She hired me on the spot. Oh and my God. <laughs> said, Don't you want like some, a resume, you know, some references you want to talk to some people about me? And she's like, no, I just feel like you're the right person. She's like, but we can do those things. And she said, but I would like to, <laughs> she's like, so this must've been like on a Monday or a Tuesday because uh-huh. at the end of the week, she was going to be leaving town. And she was really trying to get this, like, have me make a decision by Friday. Oh, and so I was like, well, this is how much money I need. And I need benefits because I need to replace what I'm going to be losing at Georgia Public Broadcasting. And sure enough, she hooked that up by the next day. It was hooked up and I came on over to her shop. (laughs) I gave my two weeks at GPTV and I was at the Woodruff Arts Center in a couple of weeks. I'm sitting here with my jaw open. Like that does not happen. <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly the way it happened. And you you asked a question earlier about whether I made a decision. You know, I did make a very conscious decision about the arts. You know, early on, I had had the opportunity to, you know, to really like work in music. And I was in radio. And so it was like, okay, well, you know, I really wanted to, you know, my goal at the time was to work for LaFace Records. Mm. And that was like, the, that was the whole goal. And, but then I had all these people that were friends that were, you know, that were in the music industry. It's just like, this is not your, this ain't your life. Like, this is not good for you. Like you will not thrive here. Mm -hmm. This is not for you. And I'm just like, I am like really smart. What are you talking about? (laughs) I absolutely would thrive there. And, but then, you know, the more and more that I, cause you know, at the time, you know, music in Atlanta was killing and kicking. And, you know, the more I hung out in the industry, because that's at the time where every label had, you know, had a space here and, you know, what have you. But what I realized is that they were right, is that, you know, because once again, it's like, you know, it it takes a certain sensibility Mm -hmm. and sensitivity to like to really do that work. And, you know, I would go to like, you know, the conferences and it was it's just such a cutthroat industry. Mm -hmm. That that wasn't, that ain't my life. They were right. <laughs> and I don't have it in me to be that. And often in order to be in positions of leadership in that world, mm-hmm. you know, th- that's the kind of person that, you know, you have to be. And I'm just not that. And so, and have like, you know, and it was always men in the industry that was like, Mm-mm, you're not about that life. <laughs> so they're like, you do not need to be here, not working in the industry, hang out in it you know, make contacts, but no, you don't need to be working in this industry. And again, at first I did not believe them, but then as I started to like really spend more and more time in it, and I just realized that, you know, cause everything ain't for everybody, mm-hmm. you know, everything is not for everyone. And, and there's nothing bad about people that are in it. It's just that, you know, we all have different personalities and sensitivities to different things. 
where we will thrive and where we will not thrive. And for these brothers to be able to have that level of insight into me. And you know, respect. Like, yeah, exactly. People like Tony Mercedes. Tony Mercedes, I don't know if you are familiar with that just my baby daddy. <laughs> you know, and other songs like that. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> hey, but you know what? Tony, but Tony he made a, a slew of hits, yes. you know, like that. And continues to have a, a life in that industry. But Tony was like one of the, one of my biggest cheerleaders, but also one of the biggest people in my ear saying, Mm-mm, nope. And he was at LaFace. And I was just like, Tony, just get me in. And he's like, nope, not for you. Mm-mm. This ain't your, this ain't your life. <laughs> so I do appreciate those brothers and those black men in my life that were like, you are destined for something very different from this. And this isn't it. And you know, so I took that advice, you know, including my, you know, my former husband. And I took my, that advice and kept moving. You know, it's really interesting because they always put a label on black men. But when black men like have got your back for real, for real, they yep. tell you real quick and real simple. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and they are definitely protectors of us when they are locked into us. And it's mm-hmm. real clear. And they don't tell you why. They just say, no, this isn't for you. Yep. And you're right. You're absolutely right. And I have to big up Black men because I've had so many positive role models, experiences, you know, with brothers in my lifetime and with Black men, you know, whether it's grandfather's father, uncles, you know, whomever, but then great friends who really have always had my back. And so, you know, I have a, a great relationship with Black men. I know it's the best. It's real simple. (laughs) Very, very simple. Yeah, it's very simple. And once, like I said, once they respect you, you're, you're down for life. And it's Mm -hmm. it's actually a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I love that you're saying this because we don't hear it enough from black women, how powerful those relationships are. Yeah. And the fact that they kept you out of an industry they knew that wasn't for you Mm -hmm. it led you to your path. Yeah. So the ancestors were guiding everything. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. And I, and I am a firm believer of that, you know, and you have to, you know, cause, and then they know me, it's like, let her, you know, I was always the kid that was, you know, or your parents would say, don't touch the stove cause it's hot. But I was the kid that was like, well, how hot is it? <laughs> you know? So I'm still going to touch it just because I really need to understand how hot is it? How close can I get? to the point where I hurt myself. So I was that kid. I'm still that adult in a whole lot of ways. Like how far can we push this envelope before you don't need to push it? So I'm always like kind of testing the boundaries, you know? <laughs> and so they really were like, Mm-mm, nope, no. <laughs> I love that. You sound like you're very self-aware. How did you get gain or get that confidence within yourself? You know, I think it's basically that background that we talked about. You know, when you grow up with everyone telling you that you can do and be whatever you want to be and do, you know, and then giving you the pathway to it, you know, I think that you are very self-aware and you're, you, I mean, you gain that, you, you become very self-aware and also you become very confident because, you know, especially the more that you do it and you succeed, and we succeed because we have a village behind us behind us that, you know, we can always fall back on and they'll catch us, but also that's constantly pushing us forward. And I feel extremely, extremely blessed in my life that I've had that, always had that village. So it, you know, it started out as a village of family and friends, and then it became, you know, the, the village just kind of continued to expand, you know, so I am very grateful for that village, but that confidence you know, really comes from being growing up and being told that you can do what you want to do. It's all about how hard you're going to work for it. You can have what you want to have, how hard you're going to work for it. How much are you going to, how much will you commit? You know, I mean, so it's like, those are the lessons that, you know, we were really taught growing up. And then those are the examples I saw too growing up. Who are the, some of the women that guided you on your journey? Hmm. Well, obviously, you know, we can start with my mother and grandmother as far back there. When I was young, I, um, there was a playwright um, in Wilmington. One of my best girlfriends, her mom was a playwright. And that's when I first realized like, oh, okay. So 
we're going to this play that Miss BB actually wrote. Her name is um, Beatrice. I mean, um, BB Coker. Mm-hmm. So Beatrice Coker, but BB Coker. And so Miss BB wrote this play. Okay. And so I was, you know, couldn't have been in like probably about sixth or seventh grade and was understanding like, okay, I get this. And that she was a big deal because she wrote this play <laughs> and wrote a series of plays actually. But I was really very influenced by that. And, you know, and even as a young person watching for colored girls when I was a kid on, cause it, you know, it was, it was on PBS. And so therefore it was on television. And I remember the first time I saw colored girls. And when I first saw colored girls, that's when I knew mm-hmm. I wanted to be in the thing that they were in. Mm-hmm. I may not have been able to call it at that time, but whatever it was that enabled this to happen, I want to do that. So in high school, I was always in plays. Like I told you, we were in a theater guild when I was in junior high school, but it was a lot of it was because of the influence of for colored girls in my life. Oh, wow. And you know, the funniest, the funny thing is, is that here we are like, so all these years later, you know, even when I went to the National Black Arts Festival where Stephanie Hewley hired me, Mm -hmm. I'm at the festival when I came to the festival full time. But Stephanie had been the tour manager for For Colored Girls. Oh, wow. Right. And so when it traveled after Broadway and it traveled around the, um, really around the world, Stephanie was the tour manager. So I thought that was like really interesting. Like, here's this, this is the thing that said to me that I want to do the arts. And then you were the tour manager. And then now, since that time, you know, knowing so many of the women that were a part of either the touring cast or that initial cast. And so that's also a very cool thing, you know, to be like, hey, do you you have no idea how impacted I was. <laughs> you had a um, fan, fangirl moment. <laughs> I did. I had and then, of course, I have a uh, my English teacher from Tennessee State was also a guiding force. Um, Dr. Helen Houston, you know, that's where I first read The Color Purple. And mm. that's where I met Octavia Butler. And, you know, I mean, so many female writers, you know, African-American writers. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, though, also people like Richard Wright. And, you know, so my Black Lit course right. was also a huge shaping factor in my life. And, you know, once again, then you come into the arts where you work with the same people that you right. read about in college that you were like, Ah, the color purple. Interesting. And then you do something with Alice Walker, you know, so that is also every time I do something with one of the writers that we studied, I always send her the program or a photograph or something, uh, you know, this, or I'll just call her like, guess what I'm going to do, you know? So, so okay, yeah. hold up. You're not just going to lay that out here and not go into that story. Working with Alice Walker. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, because, you know, with the festival, we represented Alice. And so, you know, and did her in conversation with Pearl Clegg. So, yeah, so getting those opportunities to work with those artists in those ways. I can't wait for the movie to come out. I'm very curious to see what Steven Spielberg and Oprah have done. Yeah. With the color purple. I'm like, I don't know how many versions that they can have of this, but I'm going to consume all of them. Yeah, I I look forward to it as well. You know, I I think that it's going to be, and especially when you look at the cast, it's like, okay, this is an interesting cast and let's see how we do. How do we do this version? So yeah, (laughs) I agree. I have had the pleasure of going to the Black Arts Festival a couple of times. And when I tell you, it feels like, it felt like Mecca in America because it was, I was just high the whole time. The musicians, the artists, the performers, everybody was there. I had an opportunity to hear a conversation with Alfie Woodard, mm-hmm. which was amazing. And just everything, house music, everything was there. And it just felt like a magical place for Black people, especially coming from St. Louis, where at that time we didn't have a lot of Black arts that that open. Mm-hmm. And so... In producing something of that magnitude, how do you approach it and what is your intention? Ooh, that was a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) And what is your intention? Well, the intention, when I was at the festival, the intention was always, how do you present something that is going to be transformative? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you transform and use these forms to transform somebody's life, right? Mm -hmm. That was always a, a big thought of mine. The second thought was, how do we educate 
people about our people. You know, every one of those conversations, every show, every exhibition, every everything was really about education because the more that we educate, you know, so we introduce you to Alfre Woodard in a different way. Now you're tuned in to all of Alfre's films. Right. Then you're then, you know, when you look at the breadth of Alfre Woodard's films, you know, you can literally go from African stories, you know, all the way to stories about, you know, Black Southerners. I mean, you know, so it really runs the gamut mm-hmm. because we turned you on to Alfre. So you kind of tuned in. And so it's always, you know, about education. The year that the festival did the 100th year anniversary of, of W.B. Du Bois. Mm-hmm. That was a huge education, even for those of us who were working it, mm-hmm. you know, because you because that's the other thing is that when we are every time we did anything, you know, you're really digging into that subject matter mm-hmm. in a very different kind of way. And that same English teacher, I called her to say, hey, we're doing W.B. Du Bois this year. And so I'm revisiting Souls of Black Folk. And she said, you're revisiting it. I'm glad you're visiting it because she's like, I don't know if you visited it when you were in college. <laughs> I read that book. Okay. And I, and I passed the test. I don't know what we're talking about right now, but, um, but yeah, I know total shade, but to be able to really, you know, just examine things in a different way. And so that was always, so the education providing something that was transformational and then just really also what is going to keep moving the culture forward. Mm-hmm. And so how does a person take the information that we give during that festival and really during any performance or anything? And how do you take that and continue building on it for your own life, for Monica's life? How does that have an impact later on, you know, in your world? And so those are the things that I used to think about. And then also, who are you doing this for? You know, so it's the why are you doing it? And then it's the who are you doing it for? And so, you know, even we think about audiences, it's like, okay, so I already know that Black women between this age and this age are going to show up. Mm -hmm. But what are the things that I have that are going to bring in Black men? What are the projects and programs that we're going to do that's going to bring in, you know, Miss Mabel? Now, Miss Mabel may be 67, I mean, 70 years old, but Miss Mabel may not come and see this, but I'm going to put this, make sure that we have this in a schedule because she's going to come see this, because it's going to be something that resonates with her. So, you know, so even in the planning of the festival, thinking about all of the different audiences. So, and then, you know, we had Dr. Hopkins who met, who took care of the, the um, young people and the children. And so it was really, how do we encompass, I mean, create a festival that really encompasses the interests of Black people across the board. And then it's also inviting to people that are non-Black because it's just as important for them to learn our culture as for us to learn our culture. Mm-hmm. And it, it definitely felt like that. It was something for everybody. If you wanted to see a movie, if you wanted to see whatever you wanted to see, it was there. And it was a very informed display of our culture. And I love that. It wasn't just watch a performance. It was like, you're going to walk away with something. I mean, I felt like I was dipped in blackness. And when I got home, I said, I have to tighten my stuff up because I need to get it together. <laughs> Monica, and Monica, thank I, and I really appreciate you saying that, though, because, you know, once again, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, Dr. Gregory Carr. Greg is the, yes. African, okay, you know, Greg, mm-hmm. Africana studies at Howard University. And so he and I were talking, he and I are classmates. Um, he went to Tennessee State with me. And, you know, we were just kind of talking about our, you know, just kind of the work that we do. And, you know, he said something really interesting. He said, you know, sometimes I wonder if we're making a difference, you know, and I was like, you talking to the choir, because I wonder the same thing, you know, because it's like we we operate. And while you think that we're operating and that we have a big megaphone, mm-hmm. our megaphone is not as big as like the the more commercial spaces and places and people who are more commercial. And our megaphone isn't as big as that. And so while we're really trying to because when people ask me what I do, Monica, I never say I'm the senior director of programming at the Apollo or. Well, no, actually, I do say that, but it's all <laughs> But it's only after I say that, you know, I try to tell Black people who we are. 
Mm. You know, and then how do I do that? I do that through these other mediums, which is the Apollo, which was the National Black Arts Festival, which is Hammond's House Museum, where I am able to, you know, engage in programming that tells our stories. Mm -hmm. And the more that we are able to tell the breadth of our stories, the full breadth of our stories, you know, not just these like kind of stories that, you know, you hear all the time in music, you know, what have you, but the fullness of our stories. And that is what we do through, you know, this this kind of artistic space that we are in, Mm -hmm. is that we are telling our stories and we're telling it through the voices of all of these artists, these phenomenal and remarkable artists that are telling their own stories through a very particular and specific lens. Well, I will just tell you as somebody who's on the outside of what you're doing, we're paying attention. (laughs) My friends and I discussed Dr. Carr's show. Like, mm-hmm. Did you see? Did you see this or did you see that? We discuss books. We discuss. We discuss all of that. So it might not be in the mainstream, but it's definitely in the rivers that we are rolling down because it's very important. Because you can't get it in the mainstream yeah. that you are continue to do what you do because we're literally. I was. Well, I was talking to a friend and we we're talking about back in the day. Our conscious movement was so different than this woke movement now. Mm-hmm. that we would share books. <laughs> okay, you know, you go read this book and then we'll discuss it. Yeah. And so now yeah. YouTube is our greatest teacher right now because yeah. it's not in the mainstream and those stories still have to be told. So you all are doing a beautiful job doing it. And I'm so happy to see that you're the Apollo now. I can't <laughs> imagine with that level of uh, theater or it's not a theater anymore. It's a performing arts center now. Yeah, Performing Arts Center. I can't imagine Um, what you're going to create there because I'm telling you, the Black Arts Festival in Atlanta was like, I wish I could have gone every year. (laughs) You know, the Apollo is, it is that, but it's different in that, you know, we have like just this year, I mean, so we're about to announce our schedule in about a week, no, two weeks, our schedule for the fall. And before the entire season, which is going to be from October, September through June, we have 110 programs, you know? So the difference between the Apollo and the festival is that, you know, with the festival, there really was a big humanities piece of the festival, mm-hmm. you know, where it really was about that education on some levels, Right. So every one of those conversations, you know, all of that was really more under the humanities umbrella Mm -hmm. as opposed to performance. And the Apollo is very much performance, although we do have a speaker series, which, you know, where there is definitely that humanities piece of it, but not as much as at the festival where you really were like kind of digging very deeply to, you know, just to be able to present something that was going to resonate in a a particular way. And it was also all really connected. Mm -hmm. So at the Apollo, it's a little different, although I think that, and it's also kind of different in that we also play a lot in the commercial world Mm -hmm. at the Apollo, a lot more than we did at at the National Black Arts Festival. So there's something that's really cool about that because it is, you know, any performing arts center would be, you know, very lucky to have a as much of an impact on the cultural world, right, mm-hmm. as it does in the commercial space. So the Apollo is relevant in all of those in all of those pockets, mm-hmm. which is actually really exciting, you know. So I really do appreciate that about the Apollo because it, you know it's a very rare opportunity because performing arts centers don't sit in that space where they're as relevant to all the the, the full culture, the fullness of culture. So that's cool. But then, you know, there is also this idea, I mean, you know, this whole thing that you are sitting in the largest Black performing arts space, largest Black performing arts center, and what are the things that we can do? And we do some really, really good work. And so I'm very excited about this upcoming season. Um, We've done, you know, because when I came in, it was during the pandemic. So most of what we did was online earlier this year in the spring of this year was when we first entered back into the theater. And so that was my first time like really producing in the theater. And it was cool. I have to say it was very cool. And, you know, this thing of like standing on the stage and understanding the full 89 year history or 88 year history of an organization, 
or of a, of a space, you know, because the Apollo's only been a nonprofit organization since like the early 90s. So before that, it really was more of a theater that booked artists, that artists, you know, booked themselves into and what have you. But to be on the stage where, you know, James Brown proclaimed, I'm Black and I'm proud, mm-hmm. or to be on the stage where Ella sang or, you know, Red Fox or, I mean, you know, and, and when you are there and you can feel all of that, it, it feels like something special happened here. Mm-hmm. And that energy is like, it is a beautiful energy because you feel like something special happened here and all you're doing is continuing to build on the history, you know, and to build on the legacy of this institution. So it's great. I love the gig. I love working at the Apollo and the opportunity. And yeah, and I just look forward to continuing to add to the legacy of the institution. I just feel like the Apollo is like going to your grandmother's house. (laughs) And everybody, everybody shows up for Sunday dinner, no matter what they've done outside of the house. Yep. We're all cousins inside of the house. So I think that even though it may be different than the Black Arts Festival, it's still a center of our culture and community. And that's absolutely just as powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that they have different functions. You know, the festival, you know, I mean, it was a a 10 to 15 day once a year, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of thing, which means that we have the entire year to think about it. Mm-hmm. To think about it, to to shape it, to, you know, this working process at the Apollo was very different. Mm-hmm. So they're just two very different entities. But yes, absolutely. You know, the Apollo as center of culture, it, it really is a center of culture. It's like a Mecca of culture. That is a beautiful thing. Have there, of all the things that you've done, has there been one thing that really took your breath away? of all the things that you have produced or curated or put together that just Mm -hmm. resonates with you still? Huh. That's a good question, Monica. And I don't even know if I know the answer to that, (laughs) you know, because we've done, I mean, I've really had the, the great opportunity to do a lot of work with some, with just some amazing artists. And I'm just trying to think, is there something that, I mean, that stands out? We just did an event at the Apollo called The Gathering. Mm-hmm. which was with a full symphony, choral voices, three symphonic pieces by three Black composers. It was beautiful. It was absolutely. And there are moments where I was just like totally, you know, teary-eyed and having that experience. At the National Black Arts Festival, I think that if I had to think about things that, stayed, um, that stood out, it was um, when we did a tribute to the Negro Ensemble Company, mm-hmm. which was one of my, for, actually, that was my very first event that I served as producer on for the festival. And it was a tribute to the Negro Ensemble Company. And they had not seen one another in so many years. And we brought them together. And it was phenomenal. Also, when we did a tribute to Nina Simone, was great. Curtis Mayfield. I mean, there's so many great right? <laughs> things. You like all the things, Monica, all the things. Right, really, all the things. <laughs> All the things I can, I mean, there's only, you know, when I think back on the National Black Arts Festival, there's nothing that I can say that it was like, oh, we missed there. I can't say that about anything. You know, there were some things that were more, that were better attended than other things. But in terms of a miss, the productions were always top notch, you know, I mean, just top notch. And so, yeah, so I, I feel good about mostly everything that we did at the National Black Arts Festival. Beautiful. I can't think of anything. And then as I think about the Apollo work, I feel really good about all the things we've done at the Apollo so far. Mm, I can't wait to see it from a distance and eventually get to New York to experience it myself. In the spring of this year, we are going to be doing Blues People. Now, Blues People, the book by Mary Baraka, Blue and it's gonna so the this piece is going to like really celebrate um, Amiri Baraka's Blues People. It's sixty years old in um, this year, but the interesting thing is, I wanted to do Blues People when I was at the festival and I was going to like one of the festivals is going to be themed Blues People, and that was like at its forty fifth anniversary, mm-hmm. and it just we just couldn't make it happen at the festival. So to be able to circle back around to mm-hmm. it on the sixtieth year in New York. You know, where Mary Baraka was his stomping grounds in Harlem, no doubt. It gives it a whole different kind of energy. Mm -hmm. And so it's exciting. And we actually commissioned Atlanta 
bass musician and trumpeter, Russell Gunn. So Russell has written the music for it. There's, I'm sure, will be a lot of Atlanta musicians that will be participating in it. But then we have people like Jasmine Horn that's singing, Wyclef Gordon, um, the trombonist will be performing. Um, so we've got a, a number of special guests that it, it's just going to be so dynamic, really exciting. Now, I'm going to say this. Russell's one of ours. He's from here. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. I, that is perfect. Russell, he's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's absolutely amazing. I feel like I need to go buy my plane ticket now. <laughs> this sounds See, incredible. I, you know what? You should. And I will let you know when tickets go on sale because we're not putting those tickets on sale just yet. They'll go on sale in the fall. But yeah, so that is coming up in the fall and then in the, I mean, in the spring. But in the fall, we've got Camille A. Brown, the dancer, will be doing a full uh, main stage piece. We've got Umu Sangare coming from Mali. You know, so there's quite a bit to even a conversation with, with Fat Joe because he has his memoir, The World According. Is it called The World According to Jose? I think it's The World According to Jose. But it's Fat Joe's memoir. But Fat Joe was the first amateur night, the first rapper to win amateur night. What? Yeah. So he's got that. this. Exactly. I was like, look at that Apollo history. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So we're doing this conversation with Fat Joe. I think it's in either October or November. So, but that's one of the things I was talking about earlier, where you can have Camille A. Brown and her dancers on the stage, you know, mm-hmm. Camille comes out of Ron Brown's dance company and over the past 10 to 15 years has really built her own name and her own company. And, you know, she just got nominated for Tony Award. She directed mm. for Colored Girls on Broadway. You know, she the girl. And so we, we will be presenting she and her company. But, you know, so on one day in November, it's that. And then on another, another day, you can come and hear Fat Joe. <laughs> <laughs> That's you know? the best of the best, though, because as a culture, we're all of those things. We're all of those things. And then another day you can come and hear Dion Cole because we've got Dion Cole. You know, the Apollo definitely is known for its comedy mm-hmm. with Pigmy Martin. I mean, Pigmy Markham, Red Fox. You know, we can just name Richard Pryor. We can name all the comedians that have taken um, that stage. And so last year, Jamie Foxx was there. This year we'll have um, Dion Cole. So, He's you know, so we funny. and then not to mention we have a monthly comedy with comedy show with up, upcoming comics. So, yeah, so that happens every month as part of our late night series. So, yeah, it, it re- really do try to present. So between film and theater and dance and music, you know, we try to literature through these conversations with um, that are book talks. And we really do try to present a little bit of everything for everybody. You are I want to be conscious of your time. <laughs> And I, I want to thank you for gracing us with this. I, I could literally talk to you forever because it's like an anthology of uh, your career is truly an anthology because you've done so much and work with so many people. And I don't know. I know in the arts community, everybody works with each other. And that's the beautiful thing about the arts community. There's no hierarchy once you enter those doors and everybody seems to work together. And it's just a love fest. And I think I was talking to another person, Shay Wafer. And mm-hmm. we talked about how the arts community, Black art specifically, is the last space that's just ours, <laughs> where the allies give us yeah. the money and then they move out of the way and let us do us. Yeah. So yeah. I would agree with Shay. Shay is actually a good friend and I and, and good colleague. Um, Shay and I have actually traveled to Africa together. So, you know, that's my whole thing is once you don't travel to Africa with people like y'all down forever. <laughs> so. Cousins. For real. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> sisters, not even cousins, sisters. Yes, yes. But she's I, right, though. She is absolutely right in terms of the funding communities and the arts, the ones that, you know, fund for real, for real. Mm-hmm. They do exactly that. They're like, okay, so here is the grant and go create. And we're not over your shoulder about it. We just look forward to seeing what you create. And, you know, we look forward to, you know, providing support where we can. And that is a beautiful thing. And that is what you find in the arts. And like she said, it is probably one of the last things that really are ours, where we don't, you know, we don't censor artists, you know, come in and speak your piece right. and, and tell your truth. Yeah. And as an audience member, it's where we get to see ourselves, like the, not the self that the mainstream puts out about us mm-hmm. and not through the gaze of whatever you want to call it, but 
we get to see ourselves. And that's, I know for me growing up, going to the theater and going to dance and all those other things, that's where I built my confidence because I got to see other women that look like me doing their thing. (laughs) And it just opened up a portal for me to do my thing, whatever I decided that to be. And so even though it's a beautiful space for Black women, I know that across the board, there are many challenges for Black women. How were you able to navigate that? Or do you have advice for others trying to weave their way through the arts community, getting their work shown or working the administration like you do? Do you have any words of wisdom for that? You know what, Monica, I'm going to be totally honest with you and totally transparent is that it's been Black women that put me down, like that totally put me on. Let me not mm. say put me down, put me on. Right. I meant down with everything, but that put me on. Like I mentioned, Stephanie Hewley from the National Black Arts Festival earlier, mm-hmm. but Stephanie Hewley and Laura Greer, when Stephanie and Laura came back to the festival in 98 or 99, and just, they were, you know, just like such a breath of fresh air when they, you know, when they called me in and was like, you know, we'd like for you to come. And I first came on as a consultant, but then around them were all these other Black women you know, these other institutions across the country. So whether they were at institutions or in foundations, but their peer group. And so these are the women who really, as Black women, were the pioneers in this work, right? right? Stephanie Hewley, when she was coming up, she interned under Joe Papp. And so for people who know like the public theater mm-hmm. and Joe's Pub, Joe's Pub is named after Joe Papp, right? Mm. And so he was her mentor. And so she learned all of this stuff from this man who was doing theater all over the place. Mm -hmm. Um, Mickey Shepard is another person. Mickey really came up a lot in like foundation work, doing foundation work. But she also, you know, ran 651 Arts, you know, for a while before she stepped down and started continuing to do her own thing. But Stephanie, but while so where Stephanie came up under Joe Papp, Mickey was being mentored by his name is, of course, escaping me right now, but he's the person that was over on the Brooklyn Academy of Music over BAM. Mm. And so then the two of them were collaborating and then also bringing in all these other Black women, you know? So it's like, okay, come on, Laura Greer. (laughs) Laura was over in Harlem at Aaron Davis Hall, you know, doing her thing. And, you know, so you have a, so you have this small group of Black women that were really the pioneers in this. And so because they existed and they created a way for me you know, because I kind of like that next generation from them where they just kind of poured into me, Baraka Sele, who's at New Jersey Performing Arts Center, you know, so they poured and they made a decision to pour into me because they was like, yeah, you, you next, you, and they would say you up next. And so we're going to give you all of this, whether you want it or not. <laughs> and so there were moments where I'm just like, I don't want it right. Like, leave me alone. Whatever. <laughs> But they, um, I always joke with Stephanie and Baraka, like y'all tried to pledge me, quite frankly, because it felt <laughs> like I was being pledged. You know, Laura and Mickey were the ones I was just like, okay, can you please call your girls? <laughs> and then behind me, so my peer group, so I have a peer group in this on a national level. And then behind us is a larger group, you know, a peer group. I mean, a larger group of women that are doing this. And then now there's like a whole lot of black women in the field that when I go to conferences, I'm like, who is that? Who's that? And it's a beautiful thing because we used to see each other and like cling because we're like, we were, you know, there were very few of us. Mm-hmm. And so now you've got this huge cadre of Black women that are in pockets across the field, you know, so they may be in dance, they may be doing theater, you know, they're doing film, they're, you know, visual arts. I mean, they're all over the place. And we are. And then even at the Apollo, you know, our leadership team is mostly Black and female. Wow. And the cool thing is black and female and fairly youngish. I mean, I am one of the more, the more senior members, you know, of the team in terms of age at 55. And so mostly everybody is younger than I am. So when you, you know, like 45, you know, like in their forties. And so, you know, so when you really think about, and then we're bringing up another generation. So, you know, we've got our, you know, this, this other group of, of staffers that also are very excited about, you know, working in a place where there's all so much female leadership, you know, Black female leadership. Because that's so rare. (laughs) It's very very rare. And, but that's also what's really cool and exciting about it because it is very rare. 
But in the arts, what you'll find in the arts, though, is that there are a lot of Black women. And whenever I talk about this, though, I really am talking like in the national, through a national lens, you know, because I'm just thinking about my colleagues across the country. And you said something earlier about collaboration. And we're very collaborative. Like, actually, I'm talking to Shay right now about, you know, they're getting ready for their upcoming season. And so we're looking at ways that the Apollo and Waco can collaborate, oh. you know. So, you know, where we have programs that will then be over on the West Coast through through Shay's organization. Mm-hmm. So it is a, you know, constant collaboration, you know, talking to people in Texas about things like that, you know. So, so you know, it's, it's, it is a constant collaboration. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it is about all of us collaborating, but also how do we give artists, how do we amplify these artists and give them the largest possible opportunities? Mm-hmm. You know, so if we do a program with artists XYZ and it's like, okay, so now you can do the Apollo, but then you can go over here and do, you know, Waco in LA, but then you can go over here and do something at in Pittsburgh at the August Wilson Center. And you can also do, you know, so it's like, how do we set those kind of opportunities up, you know, for artists? And so that is, oh, and then let's not forget the Kendi Center and all the collaboration that we do with the Kendi Center. So you know, it's setting up those kind of opportunities for artists. And then I'm trying to get Atlanta in the mix as well. You know, so I've been talking to Camille Love and I've been talking to the Rialto, you know, about what type of collaborations we can do. And then the Apollo also just served as the host for True Colors Theater Company. So True Colors does their monologue competition every year. And so this year, for the first time, they did it at the Apollo. So we're trying to figure out how to go ahead and, and, and strengthen that relationship. So, you know, so it it really is how do we just kind of continue to provide space and opportunities for artists, you know, for the future artists, future writers and, you know, what have you and playwrights and, you know, and just kind of help, help, you know, all boats rise. And I'm a real proponent of all boats rising. Mm. Girl, you just gave a sermon. Like there's so much wrapped up into that because it is about connecting and collaborating. That is our only way forward for the future of Black people. We have to come together and work together and combine resources, combine our talents, and com- combine our innovations. Mm-hmm. Other communities do it all the time. Yep. <laughs> so and the thing is, is that we, and we have grown by doing that. Yes. You know, and there are so many, there are many areas that we continue to do that. It's just that we don't do it the way that we used to. But in the spaces and places that I operate in, and, I, and I've always been, because I've always, you know, really prided myself in being a team builder, you know, someone that builds teams and collaboration and cooperation are a big thing while they, they mean two totally different things. But both of those, by definition, are ways that I like to work, you know, so there are some things where it's a cooperative relationship, but then there's some things where it's a collaborative relationship. And so it's like, I got $5 and you got $5. Let's see how we're going to make this work. And sometimes it's like, okay, I got $5, but you got some space. Let's see how we're going to make this work, you know? Right. So, so yeah, so you're, I agree with you and that that is the way that we will grow. But to your earlier, the question that kind of started this was about women. And I feel as though I have been fortunate and that I've always been, in, I've been in these spaces with Black women who have just kind of continued to push and uplift. And they and genuinely cheer for you and genuinely pull your coattail and be like, sis, you, right. you do know that that whole thing looked real crazy. Right. You know, and we'll tell you that. And that's the thing I love about us is that we will tell us about ourselves. So I, I'm very I feel very fortunate in that. But what I would say to other women who are seeking that who don't have that is to seek out other black women to build your little coalition, build your crew. And I see it all the time, though. I, I actually see it. I see it a lot in Atlanta. I see these, you know, these black girl collectives and I see it a lot. But it's like we just need to, you know, keep at it and then just keep on building the resources, you know, keep building the resources and putting them out on the street. And there are people here in Atlanta that do that really, really well. And it's actually very, very fan- It's been great to watch. Mm. I'm loving everything. I'm sitting here with my mouth open because I'm loving everything you're saying. It's like, not only is it beautiful, but it's feeding me into understanding what I need to do. And I just wanted you to know, you have an open platform here. Anytime you say, girl, I need to record something, 
<laughs> well, Monica, thank you. I, I <laughs> but I appreciate that though, because sometimes you got stuff that you need to say right. or stuff that you need to, you know, stuff that you need to introduce. You know, I used to do a podcast called the 13th floor lounge. And then I started working at the Hammond's house and I didn't have time to do a podcast podcast anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but people are always like, what happened to the 13th floor lounge? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm going to bring it back, but just in a different format, mm-hmm. because what I recognized about it is that there were people like, and really influential people that used to listen and would say, I have never heard that person before. Mm-hmm. And had I not been listening to your podcast, I would not have ever heard of them. Mm-hmm. And I am, you know, and I'm astounded that someone is out here doing this or doing that. And then they will become fans. They'll buy work, they'll buy artwork or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever they could do. I mean, like, you know, or music or what have you. And so it was very helpful to a lot of people. So keep doing what you're doing because, you know, through these types of opportunities, that's how people find us and, mm-hmm. you know, find us and, and follow us. And then again, getting that next level of understanding. I think you said earlier where you, you know, before where you were talking about, you know, we trade books. Mm-hmm. We like what you're reading. Okay. This is what I'm reading. Okay. Well, let's trade books. Let's trade ideas because that is the way that we will continue to build these communities and to build our own knowledge base. Cause there's so much information out there. And now that they telling us they're not, they're going to stop teaching our kids even a little bit. That they were teaching them. And that makes our jobs, what you do, what I do and what so many people do, it makes it that much more important mm-hmm. because the information is no longer going to be accessible. And they have to be able to, we have to be able to access information. And so whether it is through a book, whether it is through a play or a dance or you know anything through the arts, that's why we have, I mean, we have to be able to continue to provide that for our people. And when you start talking about the liberation of black people, the liberation of black people is all about knowledge. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know who you are, then let us go ahead and break it down for you. <laughs> let me show you who you are. Let me show you who you are. And I appreciate so many people. You, you started the top of this conversation about people going back to the continent and like really, I, cause I did go back in May and took a group with me. So I went to Senegal and I, you know, I've been going to Senegal for years. Um, my first trip over there was like way back in probably 05 or 06 when we took Radcliffe Bailey, Fatima Robinson, and oh, he goes by chocolate. Oh, Mark Anthony Thompson. Mm-hmm. It's actually Tessa Thompson's dad. Oh, okay. And so we all went over there because they were working on, we had festival had commissioned Radcliffe and Radcliffe was really interested in coming off the wall. And so at that time, you know, we were like, but what does that really mean? And so he was like, I want to work with these other artists and one's a dancer and one's a a singer and a a musician. So it's like, okay, so what does that look like? And so we probably, you know, went back and forth for about a year trying to figure out what the manifestation of that was, you know, and how, what does that collaboration look like? How do you find a point of intersection and that point of intersection became their DNA. So Radcliffe, you know, was like, hey, DNA, let's all take a DNA test. And so they did. And then while at the time, like Radcliffe was like from Sierra Leone, but at the time they were having their own little, Sierra Leone was in conflict mm-hmm. at the time. And so we ended up taking them to Senegal because, you know, that is probably one of the most peaceful places on the West Coast of Africa. And so we all went to Senegal. And that was my first trip. And then I loved it so much that I just kept going back. I mean, I went back later that year. I went, you know, so I have gained friends and family there because I go back so often. And so this time I actually took my friends and family, but ended up being 10 of us that went. And it was amazing trip, you know, where everybody's like, okay, so when are we doing this again? Like we're coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> it was just such, it was so rich, but many of, of the group, a number of them had already traveled to the continent, but a lot of people had not. Mm-hmm. And so to see, to experience it through their lens was pretty fantastic. But then also it opened them up to things that are stereotypes, things that are true and not true. And I, I also love that because the more that we learn about Black people everywhere, you know, that's, you know, eventually we are going to connect eventually. Mm-hmm. I don't see it happening tomorrow, but eventually we're going to connect and be able to like really build, do some nation building. 
I know that uh, years ago, well, when I was doing my work in Ferguson, the one thing that God downloaded to me was it's time to reconnect the diaspora. Mm-hmm. Because we have to, we might not know where we come from, but like you said, our DNA, you can't deny DNA. Yep. And you can't deny that that is still in us. Because you can see it in when we perform and when we innovate. It's like mm-hmm. it comes from somewhere. It didn't come out of slavery. Right. It came from way before slavery. And so it's right. beautiful to hear you talk about connecting through DNA because I think that's very important. I always tell people, just go. Because like you said, breaking the stereotypes, what they hear about us is not true. Mm-hmm. And what we hear about them is not true. They yep. fully understand what propaganda looks like. Absolutely. And- <laughs> And you start Absolutely. to see it everywhere. <laughs> and you start to understand the power of it, mm-hmm. you know, how powerful it is, you know, that when you tell a group of people that they ain't worth nothing and how mm. they start to believe it. And when you break them down so much, I mean, when, and when you think about it, I mean, the breakdown of Black people globally, mm-hmm. globally. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it has quite a feat mm-hmm. to have done so. But also, I'm always like, who thinks of this? Like, who? <laughs> right. This? How does your mind just say, you know what we're going to do? This we, Who gets up in the morning like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make them think that they ain't shit. And then we're going to take over everything. Yes. That's like some pinky in the brain stuff. You know, what are you going to do today, brain? What we do every day, pinky, we're going to try to take over the world. I remember... I've only been to Africa twice, South Africa and Ghana. But when I went to Ghana, what I was told and taught is that how we think of Jesus as a white man, they were taught that white people were God. So they could literally come to your house and put you out of your house and saying, God wants this house. I was like, what? That's that's (laughs) some happiness right there. That is some happiness. I was floored at the depths of this and um, to know that other people went through this stuff besides the enslaved Africans here. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the only only way that you can, that's the only way that you can maintain all the, all the power. You had to do it to everybody. Right. You know, you had to do it to everybody and like totally break down the entire, you know, when, when you think about, when they went in, when people were captured and went into those slave castles, mm-hmm. first thing they did was to separate men from women and, and men and women from children. Mm-hmm. And like they tore, started tearing the family up at that moment mm-hmm. before they even got on a boat. You know, I mean, so there's like some, I mean, so there's a definitely a thought process and a, a thinking mm-hmm. that is a little diabolical, a little like, hmm, mm-hmm. you know, a little, little God complex. It's a little bit of all of those things. Mm-hmm. But so many people have suffered because of that. And so how do you end the suffering? And so I like to think that you end it when you start to introduce people to something that is much more beautiful, you know, and they see themselves in it and convince themselves differently and within their current existence. And then when I see myself differently in my current existence and within my family structure and within the space that we live in, then I see myself different globally, like in this idea of globalism, I see myself differently. And I think that the arts can provide a pathway to that. 100%. That's why I do this this work. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And I think that that is our gateway to finding ourselves is through the arts. And it's a sacred space. It's a safe space. And I feel like everybody should get engaged in one way or another, whether it's writing a check or going to a performance, or just tweeting about it to keep it alive. And I just want to say thank you for this rich, powerful conversation. I can't wait to listen back. And like I said, you have an open invitation. And if you need support with your podcast, getting it back up, I'll be like, girl, did you get it started yet? (laughs) (laughs) No, because it's all about accountability, okay? (laughs) Yeah, right. Because like, I don't care how what you're doing right now. Did you get that podcast started? Yes. So, yeah, I'm putting myself on a deadline because it is I me mean, even being accountable to myself because I can be I mean, because I am busy. But, you know, that is something that was de- near and dear and I enjoy doing it. And again, it's something that just kind of like you, it 
as much as we can continue to put the information out there through different forums and opportunities, then people will catch it. You know, so yes, yeah, so to- appreciate accountability. Shoot me an email like, what? Where podcast at? Right. <laughs> Because we have to archive our stories. That's the most Mm -hmm. important part. Mm -hmm. We have to archive our stories. So thank you again for being here and joining us. Having me. And I'm just, I'm literally like flying high and have chills because this has just been such a rich conversation. Like I said before. So Monica, I hate to be you to have to edit this though, but uh, girl, (laughs) I look, it's two parts. I've already decided it's two parts. Uh. Because it's so much, so much that I'm getting so much out of it. So I know the listeners will also get a lot out of it. And you've dropped some names. I'm like, well, who is that? Now I need to go do my research. And because there's so many people in the arts community that are in the generation before you, I've never heard of them before. Yeah. And I want to know who they are. I mean, there's more than Alvin Ailey and Catherine Dunham and Maya Angelou. There's so many other people. It was a community that we all need to know about. So again, thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. um, You're welcome. I look forward to our next conversation. All right. Have a good one. Have a beautiful day. Thank you for listening to Black Women Amplified. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and log on to blackwomenamplified.com for more information. Keep shining. Keep shining.